Okay. Um, so I, I gave out the copies, right? Okay. We will have the files. So what we're trying to do is um, is analyze uh, part of an article by uh, Rabbi Alex Ozer. I don't think it's Rabbi Dr. Alex Ozer yet. Uh, he is the JLIC at uh, at Yale, uh, my doctoral candidate there. I've met him when he visited here when I visited Yale. Um, we had a correspondence about the article I'm trying to write about Ishalacha. Um, I don't remember somewhere in that framework. I read this article. These are matters that shatter, that shatter roofs, uh, which made me realize: a, I had failed to engage properly with Shemesh Um and um, b, it is um, it is a wonderfully um, brilliant and beautiful article. Uh, as I article that made me made me happy uh, in ways not so many articles um, do. Just really say, "Wow, this is this is really really good." Um, we didn't get to finish the whole thing. No, I didn't expect it to. I thought the only way to do what right. Um, this is not the whole thing, right? This is just uh, two selections. We didn't finish the selections here. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's dense. It's very dense, right? Yes. But part of the joy of it is that it's not dense unnecessarily. It's not dense west wasted. Uh, every sentence counts, I think. You could argue My with me. argument would be that the Hebrew of reading, like, and stop is easier to understand than the English of this article. There are uh -huh. ways that some things could be said less jargony. Ah, uh, okay. So I don't you know. So I, I think that the the jargon actually is meaningful. Uh, right? He's putting philosophic depth. The question then is, though, I said it's brilliant and beautiful. The question that as soon as I read it, I wanted to uh, figure out is whether it's true, because mm -hmm. those are not related. It deserves to be true. Because it's yeah. so brilliant and beautiful, but it doesn't mean that doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that it is true, uh, and it's really important whether I think um, as, he, as he situates himself in the middle of a mafloket between uh, Shai Shai, uh, Shai Wesner, who is also many of the Menachem I quoted, uh, the professor who quoted Jerusalem Sanla, uh, and Avisagi, and probably I would say like I have a bias toward, in, in such a mafloket about reading a text, I would have a strong bias towards uh, Dr. Wesner. Um, but I shouldn't allow my biases uh, to affect me. But I'm, just tell, I'm, I'm frank up front that I, would, that I would tend to think that uh, Dr. Wesner is more likely to interpret the text in, in accordance with the intent of his original author. Um, and it relates to some of the issues we've been talking about that Miriam challenged me about after Shear, more specifically last time, uh, the question about whether there is a way to say that you have to do something on a ground other than God commanded you to do this, uh, meaning that there's a point at which God said to, right, God in some way expressed his will to, to you uh, or to somebody, to a system whose authority you, you, um, you accept saying that, um, saying that you have to do this, or are there ways of saying that you should or must do something even though you can't root it in, um, in divine command? Uh, now, his background to this, there is a general, I think, generally accepted um, understanding, and I don't know Shemesh Kup well enough to do this, but there's a generally accepted understanding, which from what I have seen is true, that Shemesh Kup makes a difference between understanding mean different kinds of rules. He understands, um, so I think we've talked about um, the difference between, uh, let's say, by chess, right, things like chess, the rules constitute the game. Right, so it doesn't. Right, it doesn't make sense to ask a question of whether kings really can move two spaces. Just the rules confine them to one. 
right? This, right? The, the question of how much a king, a king only exists as a moving piece within the game of chess. Mm -hmm. um, right? All the rules of chess that we call constitutive, mm -hmm. right? They, they, they create the reality um, which, they, right, which they address. Mm -hmm. And there are different kinds of rules which are called we call regulatory rules. Mm -hmm. Regulatory rules take some, right something would be happening anyway, and like that right we're trying to do is order the things that would happen anyway. Mm. Um, so let's say right you know people will meet each other. So we set up a rule that when you meet another human being, you're obligated to smile at them. That's a real social intercourse, right? And then we have another rule that when a person smiles at you, you're not allowed to shoot them without asking questions first. He's just making this up as a joke. Yeah. Right. And then, yeah. These are rules, right? People are going to meet each other. Yeah. Right. You're not right. If you if you fail to make these rules, people will still meet each other. They'll still smile at each other. And they'll still shoot each other. Right. The rules don't create any of those things. Right. You're just saying like mm -hmm. we would like to have more predictability. Uh, right. We'd like to have one of them happen more often than the other. Right, all sorts of things, but we're regulating, right? So, right. So the human interactions, right? Can, right. Rules about human interactions are regulatory rules. Uh, you can imagine a way in which you create specific kinds of human interactions that exist only within, only within the rules, like court etiquette, right? Right. So the right. So positions like that might be created by the rules, right? The interesting question whether there is whether there is a king, and right, because because there will be people in power, and all the rules of court etiquette do is set up the way in which interactions around power will happen anyway. Or is the whole thing of the king an artificial construction that exists only within the rules? Right. That's a question, right? Whether a king is just a regulated ruler, or a king in real life is like a king in chess. All right. So Cup is famously understood, and I think, as far as I know correctly, to believe that property law in halacha is not constitutive, right? That there is a concept of ownership that pre-exists the law. Right? The law is not regulating private property, right? The law is not just, it's not just constituting, it's not constituting private property, the law is regulating private property. Okay, you can read this in contrast to Marxism, and then you can talk about his family members who are Marxists, and you can have all sorts of fun, uh, <laughs> fun things, right? Fun things if you want, uh, which, yeah, that again, I know that I don't know well enough, but that's, that's one of his. Uh, so what's he saying about this um, concept of property ownership uh, predates halacha? Yeah. So halacha doesn't create it, halacha reinforces it. Right. Okay. There is such a thing, right? The, the statement X owns this is not, a state, is not equivalent to the statement that, uh, that according to halacha, X has the following kinyan in, in this. Right. It, Why would he argue that instead of just saying that the halakha created? So he's saying that prior to Torah Sinai, humans had this need. This situ thing. Social situation that came up, this conception, whatever. Right. It's, but it's not, but social situation, people have always claimed things, right? That's not a, right? That's not a fish. He thinks that people actually did own things. The relationship between person and object is a real thing. Right? People really do own. Right? It, people really do own things. They don't just claim to own things. They really do own things. And then we need to regulate, right? Because if I claim I own something, right? I claim I own that laptop. You claim you own that laptop. So now it, a, a society needs to be able to determine which of us should be treated as owning that laptop. So by what authority do I claim initially that I own the laptop? That's a good question. And that is right. That is why Rosh That's why I'm doing this as the introduction. It is. So Rosh seems to believe. 
that there are sources of reality, right, that are not just Torah. So the question everybody asks then is, if there is, does the concept of private property entail the wrongness of theft? Is it right? If I believe that you own it, does that necessarily mean that it's wrong for me to take it and I ought not to do it? They created an entire moral system. That's, that's correct. <laughs> that's correct. So that's the question. Right? The question is, how far does Rosh go? Granting that he, in fact, argues that, um, that halachic civil law is, right, the rules of halachic civil law are not the rules of chess, right? but rather are, right, rather are the rules about things that already exist. So the question is, does it already, exi- right? already exist just mean, okay, you have to deal with it, or does it already exist in, right, in, entail some kind of normative content, right? That be, things that already exist create, um, right? Create. So, um, so for example, we probably think, right? You know, is a place where we think it's reasonable to say that murder is wrong even before the Torah tells you to do it. And we think, right? We, we can construct an, a reasonable argument to say that one ought not to kill a Salamelokim. And the fact that human beings are B'Salamelokim, right, generates a wrongness of killing them. And the argument doesn't mean, and the reason that God doesn't want you to kill other people is because, but rather is God, God is telling you to do this because it's wrong, right? This is what we call, you know, in basic philosophy, this is called the Euthyphro question uh, because of the dialogue of Plato, where Plato asks whether, what is, whether the gods love things because they're right or things are right because the gods love them. Is there enough community to this question? Is there enough community to this question? So epistemologically, there's right, in terms of like how we know things, there's an enormous enough community. That's not enough. And there could be enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, so right, it is, can there be a conflict between what Allah says and what's right? And well, how do you choose? So in, in cases where case where Allah is constitutive, it makes no sense to say, right? It's like saying, you know what, it would be a better game. Okay, it would be a better game in chess if, right, if, um, if queens could move like horses also. But that's not the issue, right? You're playing chess. You can't say, I'm playing a better game, right? So you have to let me, have, let me do it. It's called house rules. Pardon? House rules. House rules, right. So you can say, oh, we're playing a different game then, right? Play, right. So in, in areas where halacha then just kind of covers the same ground as the pre-existing you know, moral philosophy, if it exists, it doesn't really... Make a practical difference which one you're following, but in cases where they would conflict, then it would. Right. So it's, it is, in a sense, a, a version of the question: Is there an ethic independent of halacha? Right. So I would say, like my answer just right now is that they don't contradict each other, but like maybe that there, but there could be a situation in which like halacha isn't developed enough. So like the Torah can never, there can never be a situation that like something is unethical in the Torah, basically. But maybe our halacha just isn't developed. Okay, yet. good. That's right. That's, That's what you're having to get to, right? You know, but. Just saying that, right? So, you know, what happens if I, I think the Holocaust isn't developed enough, but Rabbi So-and-so thinks it is, right? right? So, right That's so, why we have the Talmud. Okay, and we have us, but we're still dealing with it, right? Yeah. We're, still, we're still dealing with it, right? Particularly in, right. in areas of, it's easy to see in Flesh and Mishpat where Halacha is so far behind the you know, understanding, the reality in many, in many areas, uh, like corporations, right? That's an easy example, right? Where, mm-hmm. uh, but we could talk about the corporations really exist. Maybe corporations are, exa- corporations are constitutive things. Right, corporations don't exist before the law creates them. So maybe there's no such concept about corporations, even though there is about individuals owning things. Okay, right, but that's, that, it's an, as I say, he talks about, you know, and I think that's, again, I'm, I'm 
being third hand, but from what I can see, it's accurate. He talks about it in the context specifically of civil financial law, um, right? He doesn't talk about it as far as I know in the context of laws about violence, uh, uh, let alone laws about ritual. Right? There are ways, right? You could argue that, right? You could argue, uh, again, um, you know, what I think uh, my friend uh, Revelisha would argue that, you know, korbanos are also, let's say, right? Korbanos are also ways of regulating an existing religious impulse in humanity. That's right, right, right. That's a, right, 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 right. And that, that's the tradition, right? That all of halacha actually relates to something reality and is mostly, mostly not at all, right? Mostly regu regulatory, not constitutive. It deals with human reality as it is. It's not trying to create their own world as opposed to um, what we stereotypically call the brisker approach, right? Which means, which, which treats all of halacha pretty much as constitutive, right? That is the whole- There's an entire halachic reality. It plays a game, right? right? It's, a it's, a, it's its own game. And you can't ask the question about right what what if the rules were different because what, what would they even mean? Okay, uh, carbonos are a good place normally to think in for to think in abstract brisker ways because carbonos as we have them have not been modified to respond to human needs on the whole because we haven't had them for all too long. So the most you could say practically about carbonos is in my imaginary world. Right, the way the world I imagine in which human beings were engaging in sacrifices, I think they would find it more meaningful if. Right, that's a very speculative thing, and on the whole, right, so on the whole, we tend to um, we tend to read Kurbanos as right the rules of Kurbanos as constitutive. Right, it's not it's not impossible to read it the other way, but it's much easier to read it that way because we don't have access to the interaction between the rules and the, the rules and reality. We don't know what the pre-existing reality would be like. I argued that it actually is um, a choice that right, that the, the meaning of the Agatha referred to earlier in, in Yoma is that uh, Hazal cho chose to institute a psychological reality um, in which we don't relate to Kurbanos because related to Kurbanos inevitably entails with it the Yetzirah of Odazara. Uh, it's the same religious impulse. They killed the Yitzhar of Avodah and in consequence, they also killed the uh, relationship to Kurbanos, and that's why the Gemara presents the death of the Yitzhar of Avodah as a de as a decision not to invest the second Beit Hamikdash with Kedusha. Right. So, right. So, I think that right. So I could have a very, you know, very fun theological justification for why we should learn Kedushim like Prescott. even though I might not think we should do the same thing with uh, with the Zika. Um Okay, right. So that's the that's the um, the the introduction. So when you have a machlokas in kachim, so the odds, right? You know, you could claim that the machlokas in kachim is um, is about you know some kind of deep psychological understanding of what drives human beings to need human beings need atonement. Uh, you could claim that it's you know that you have a direct metaphysical understanding of what sorts of things require atonement, right? That's also possible. But the first one is wildly speculative because you don't really know it uh, right you can claim it right there are people who do you know who um i think um are, i think Zuckier, right which really right, is, is right now i think the the person on the theology of Kurbanos. that's what his that's what all his academic scholarship is about um my nephew Ephraim, also in a lot of this program uh, rabbi Ephraim meth had right, spent a lot of time thinking about the psychology of uh, corbin chicago uh, i have not done so much um but Right. If you had to say have three basic approaches, right? one is an approach that we one claims we, have, we that we have access to the psychology of atonement, 
again, assuming all carbonos are about atonement, which they may not be, right? So it'd be psychology of, of, of acknowledgement, right? For carbonatoda, things like that. And you can say, look, you know, human psychology is an absolute. And so, you know, the way we learn about carbonos is by studying, uh, I'm sorry, gifts between, you know, in relationships. Right. When do people when do people give you know, sorry gifts? And the question of whether you have to bring an Ashram Taloi is what happens if you've done something uh, that may or may not affect your spouse? Do you have to bring flowers? Or do you wait until right until the thing actually happens or doesn't happen and decide then to bring flowers? And so we can say, okay, look, obviously this is just a thing about human psychology, make it right and we can regulate it. It's important to have rules because Right, perhaps, right, because some of us don't have good human instincts, and so we need to be able to look in books, and it says, right, it says this or not, and um, also because uh, you need to evaluate other people's behavior, are they doing the right thing or the wrong thing, and everyone's just making it up on their own, right, so, you know, we're just playing with it, that, you know, that, that leaves us very, very adrift, so we can do that, right, we can build Hilfas Ashram Taloi out of, uh, out of relational psychology, uh, we can claim that we just have access, like, we know the mind of God, and we know, like, that when I, when I do that, when I do this, um, you know, it's obvious to me that the fabric of creation has been torn in such a way that could only be properly repa repaired by the slaughter of this kind of animal of this age in this manner at this place. Now, this is not a statement that I find intuitively, you know, meaningful that I can do that. You know, like I just say, like, yeah, I know, right? I just feel the universe right now. And that's what happens. You have to kill a two-year-old female cow of this species <laughs> on the north side of the altar, right? Otherwise, it's just not going to work. Uh, right, I can imagine a world in which that did make sense to me, right? But I don't live in that world, right? So I'm not going to make any arguments to you, uh, to you like that. Uh, or you can just say, you know, what we don't, all we can do is make the rules consistent. Right? We can say is that it seems to us that this kind of action in this system generally relates to, right, to the slaughter of the slaughter of oxen at the north corner of the altar. I mean, for someone to argue that Hazal understood it according to the second law, I don't think would be unreasonable. No, not unreasonable. Entirely right. You know, that, you know but all, you would still say all we can do is, right, right. is say that, right, then we can get into theological questions about Tom Hamitsos and the Rose distinction between reconstruction and construction and all that, which we don't need to do now. Yeah. Um, but, okay. So, but we have a, it's, it's easier as opposed to, let's you know, say, in, in the Machloket about whether, um, about whether Hezek, Shmia, Hezek or not, which I, which I try to interpret as this careful balance of values, right? And the question is what kind of, right? What are the social gains and losses of each side? Everybody's dealing with conflicts. We have a machlok about whether or not Shantali is about Hatifa Achas or Shatifos. It's very easy to say, no, what they're doing is dealing with a single abstraction. What is the nature of atonement? And what are, right, what are the kind of actions which we think require atonement? What are the kind of actions that don't require atonement? And it's right, and this is an opportunity to explore the question of moral law. And we could say that, right, 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 right whether the whether the moral character of an action depends on depends on outcomes, on outcomes or intentions. And, and it's very easy to, right, and that's what part of the attraction. Kabbalists can be attractive to philosophy because the issues are so straight. And so clear, right? We're just addressing the like, right? Ashantali is just a great question of addressing the role of probability and morality. Mm -hmm. Right. So right, that's that's I want to put that, that as background to what we're um, to what we're doing. Okay. So we have a we have we have a Gemara increases, which I will confess I have at best the shallowest of understanding of. Um, but I would also say that in Corbanos, if this follows. So in Kerbanos, it is perhaps um, 
the Lichtenstein like to say about the Rav, I thought it was a very useful thing, that you know, part of being a great London, particularly a brisker London, is knowing which details to ignore. Hmm. Because the way, the way in which a system develops, there'll always be details that don't actually match the concept. Whatever reason, right, you know, a, a particular figure with great authority reads a text one way, right? Let's say that you have a halachic tradition that is, that is you know, where 90% of the issues have been addressed by briskers and have an authority, but Rav Moshe Feinstein once randomly was asked a question by somebody about one particular korban, and he wrote a long tshuva explaining this one detail of korbanos in great depth. Now, that had absolutely no influence on the overall world of korbanos because it wasn't, he wasn't functioning in the same universe conceptually. But when somebody asks, like, what's the halacha about korbanos, we'll say, well, you know what? Rav Moshe Feinstein passing that one explicitly. How can I possibly answer Rav Moshe? So that, that detail is just not going to fit anything right? because it's produced by an authority who thinks differently. And you, right, you're going to possibly like him on the detail, and it's not going to affect you. Or could be there's like practical factors that compel us. Well, away like Carbonos, that's not going to be such an issue, but it could be, right? It could be that let's say that if we pass in this way about Carbonos, that would have an impact on industrial kashras in a way that other areas of right, other areas of Carbonos don't. So we can't pass in that way about this because that would make it impossible for us to hechsher Portuguese muffins or possibly <laughs> whatever your issue is. And like, so if I, if I were you and it turned out that I owned, that I had one shita in sock in Carbonos and that happened to be the one that allowed you to, to hechsher Portuguese muffins, I would be suspicious. Mm -hmm. I don't normally take positions about halacha Carbonos, but I want Portuguese muffins, right? So, right, so, uh, right, so, right, so halacha can, right, so it could be the halachas of Carbonos are distorted, which is not necessarily negative or positive. It could be that if we pass this way about Carbonos, we would have, right, there would be 15 more agunas every year. And because there's some kind of evidentiary quirk in Carbonos, right, that if we, right, all right, because halacha interacts that way. So there are all sorts of, right, so Rolokasin said that the godless of the rebels, we knew which details to ignore. Uh, now that means, right, you know, you know the part of what you have to evaluate whenever you read the Rose Lambdas is you have to find the details that he ignored and figure out whether in fact those are the right ones. Because sometimes you might think, no, that detail is like actually not a detail, it's like the, an elephant filling the entire darn room. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the other if you ever read the 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 Kibbutz and Onig other thing. There's an article on Kibbutz and Onig in Murray. There is not much space left over in the room after the elephants. Uh, right, many, many details. The details are the de huge details are ignored. I'm not sure the word details is right. Uh, like the end of the Rambam that he's building it. <laughs> the end of the sentence. Anyway, I have a little bias about that one. It's a little puzzling to me that that, um, that it was published without somebody pointing out that the next stage of the the next the next line of the Rambam seems to contradict the entire work. Mm -hmm. um, okay, new. Uh, I'm sure that the Rambam had a tarot, so it just didn't make it into the book, which was frustrating. Um, to me, it looks like a very large detail was being ignored. Um, but every, you know, all, all lambdas, yeah, anytime I have a word, right, you know, like a big conceptual claim, there are going to be things that I have to explain with just so adjustments, um, or say, you know, well, we, we must take that, that side of the machloket, even though, right, all, they're, they're always going to be, when you, when you build a conceptual frame, there are going to be details that don't yeah. fit, exactly as there is in science, when you're dealing with experimental data, mm -hmm. and not with, uh, right, and not with thought experiments. Um, okay, so the phenomenon we have here is that there is a statement of Chia Barav, which sets out two cases, one in which you are Chayav and Hashem Tole, and one in which you are not Chayav and Hashem Tole. The case in which you are, um, that turns out to be a, uh, a machloket. Um, right? but I, gave you, I gave you the one side, I gave you the position which makes the distinction. Right? The counter position says it doesn't matter in both cases you're Chayav and Hashem Tole. Uh, right? So the, the, the position that, you're, that in both cases you're Chayav and Hashem Tole is relatively uninteresting. 
in a sense, right? It just says, you're chayv Hashem if you might or might not have sinned. Right? That's a simple, that's a simple statement, right? Now we can complicate it, right? You're chayv Hashem if you performed the mice on a chetza, which might have been, which might or might not have been the chetza, which, uh, right, on, on which this is a mice iser, right? Because we don't know if it applies to, you bring an Hashem Tali if there was no chetza involved with just the mice, right? To do, right? You did, you, um, I don't know, like you walked on Shabbos, and right, and you might well that wouldn't be wouldn't be mechayiv uh, mm-hmm. right? So we need to find an, we need to find an issue that's mechayiv korban bishkaga that you might might you might or might not have done. Okay, right, but I can imagine something like that doesn't involve the that doesn't involve the chesed. All we have here is an example involving chesed, uh, right? So one example is that um, it doesn't really ma- right it doesn't matter what, it doesn't really matter as long as I did a ma'isa on a chesed that could be a chesed shel iser. Uh, which I'm not sure was or was 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 or wasn't usher, right? Then I'm high. The other position says no. If right, if it was one chesed, and I wasn't sure whether 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 or not it was the it was the chesed on which this is a ma'aseh iser, then I'm not high. There has to be two chesed, and I'm not sure which of them is the one. That right, that um, that this is a Maisa Isaran. So that the action I did might have right, it's not that there's one framework which might or might not be usher, it's there are two frameworks, I don't know which one is true. All right, so it seems to argue that I only that to that position that we require Shtei Khatikhus, and there's no Asham Tali on a Khati Achas, right? Seems to believe that there right, it has to be it has to be that they're um, that they're divided realities, I'm not sure which is true. As opposed to, I'm not sure what happens in our reality. Can you give me an example? So, if I have right, the, the example that he gives is right. I have one. I have one piece of meat, and I'm not sure whether this piece of meat is kosher or trace. Whatever reason, right? Let's say I, it came from a. It came from an animal which I did not have an opportunity to examine before the meat was dragged away. So I don't know whether the meat is kosher or trace. Right, so that's one piece. I don't know whether, and I eat it. I don't know whether it was kosher or true. So one position says that you you bring an Ashram Talib, you don't know. The other position says no. That's not the kind of case to bring an Ashram Talib. The other is there were two cows. And one of them is kosher and one of them is straight. And I have a piece of meat from each of them. I just don't know which piece of meat is which. Right. So what's the difference between those two situations? So what I'm framing it, trying to conceptually, is that in the first situation, there's only one reality. Right? I ate this piece of meat, and I just don't know what that. I don't. I don't know what my action was. Was it? A, a, as soon as you take, so there's two pieces of meat. As uh-huh. soon as you've taken one, the reality collapses down to there's one piece of meat. You don't know what it is, right? Yeah. So right, I agree with you. Right. But I think the governor is trying to claim that I haven't. Um, I haven't, right, so what, you know, it's, it's, when one goes immediately to quantum mechanical language, right, it collapsed, collapsed the wave. I, have, uh, I haven't actually. I think the easiest way of understanding the Gemara, but it's going to leave out a lot of details, is to say that, let's, let's take the quantum mechanical analogy. So, right, because I think that might be helpful here, though it might be misleading. So there's the piece of, in the first case, only one piece of meat, it, that piece of meat is not entangled with anything else. Nothing that can happen afterwards will change the status of this meat. Mm-hmm. But in the two pieces of meat, there's a quantum entanglement. Whether the piece of meat I ate is kosher or not depends on whether the other piece of meat is kosher or not. Mm-hmm. So if I later discover that the other piece of meat was kosher, 
then it turns out that the piece of meat I ate was treif, absolutely. And if I later discover that the other piece of meat I ate was treif, then the piece of meat I, eat, I ate was kosher. So therefore, what I did, right? So there, therefore, and it's right, what I did is different. In the first case, what I did was engage in a permanently ambiguous act. Right? There's no way to collapse the to collapse the function. In the second case, what I did was I engaged in an ambiguous act, which may later be qualified. Okay, so your you're... assumption is that with the single piece of meat, we will never know. And I'm ignoring the detail that the, right that it might, that that single piece of meat might depend on some other factor, like I might later find the cow. Exactly. Well, right. Now we can do like testing okay. potentially, like medical testing. We could we all sorts of things, right? I'm ignoring yeah. all those things. That's a detail, yeah. right? Yeah. The conceptual framework we are setting out, right, is that in the in the first case there is no entanglement, in the second case there is entanglement, and then we're going to make a claim that you don't bring an ashram taloi about something about something which is permanently questionable. You only bring an Ashram Taloi about something which might become definitely us. Yeah, I mean, that's what Rasha says. Yeah. Okay, right. But, but I'm sorry to keep questioning. Yeah, I, I, I think your quantum mechanics analogy makes things more complicated. <laughs> I like your tag a little bit. Okay. It works for me. Because it yeah, allows things out there to. Fred? Yeah, so it sounds like your moral, the morality of your action depends on whether you can find out at some point if you did something wrong or not. If there's no way to ever find out, which doesn't seem realistic because there's always that person who knows and comes forward. But um, if there's no way you can ever find out, you're positive that changes the moral balance of the action. It changes, well, moral is already, you know, imposing certain kind of thing, it changes the halachic balance of the action. And then we can, right, it means either, it means either according to that shita, according to Rav, either I bring a, one way I bring an Ashim Tali and one way I don't. Now you can decide whether an Ashim Tali relates to anything other than the rules of Ashim Tali. I thought you just bring it if you're feeling guilty. No, 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 no. That's, that's, right, that's psychologizing. Yeah. Whether you feel guilty or not. Here we say have rules, whether you're allowed to feel guilty enough to bring a sacrifice or not. <laughs> uh, you're supposed to be a happy person. You're only supposed to feel guilt if you bring a sacrifice. You're not supposed to bring a sacrifice if you feel guilt. Meaning, it seems like our interpretation, the other one was right, okay. the one that the second one, because remember I said two interpretations? So it's like the first one is like, basically, I mean, the one that's right according to you seems to be um, like you're supposed to feel guilty. It's just, it's using like this form of talking. It's like if you feel anxious, but they're really saying like, since we assume you're a halakhic person and like you care about this stuff, you will feel anxious in the situation. So you should do this. The Gemara doesn't say anything about how you feel. Right. You bring it from totally, right? No, remember we That's were Rabbi Simon. Oh, okay. Right. All right. So you make you make your own decision which way the causality goes. Okay. Right. right. Whether you're, you're you know whether, whether it's Shabbos, so I'm happy, or you're right, or I'm happy. Right. Right, or I'm happy because it's shot, right? That's a whole different, right? If you know, so we have the classic, you know, Bill story about, you know, saying, like, I suppose, you know, God forbid my, my relative died, but it's Shabbos, so I'll feel happy in public. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, 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 how, right, how, right, how, you know, to what extent your emotions are regulated by the law, uh, or to what extent the law responds to the right to the reality, to the reality of emotions. Um, mm -hmm. And there are other examples we can give in halacha where, you know, where there isn't the, the classic example of entanglement in halacha 
is um, the header of Safik Tuna Bishasarabi. Right, where right, I have a road and, and it's not clear whether that it's not clear whether that road is Tamir or Tahar. So if it's a public road, I'm Tahar. Right, you're allowed to you can walk through a public road that might be Tame and we regard it as absolutely Tahar, not doubtful. Right, there's a because the rule is resolved. If there's a doubt about Tuma and Rishasarabim, and you walk through your right, you walk through your Tahar. But what if the doubt is framed as there are two roads, one, one of which is Tame and one of which is Tahar? We don't know which is which. Now you walk down the first road, you're tower. You walk down the second road, for your tower. Walk down both roads together. Now what happens? Each action was independent, right, is independently legitimate, right? So right, so there are, right, that we can complicate it. What if two people, right, two people walk down the separate roads and then they meet and touch each other in such a way that if one of them were right, 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 so, right, so that that's when you want to talk about entanglement probabilities in halacha, that's usually the example. Um, that you uh, that you give right then the rule is the reverse for shosayachid right what happens if you have a case where the doubt depend right where the doubt is one of these one of there's there's a fifty percent chance that the shosayachid is tummy and the fifty percent chance that the shosayachid that the tumah is the shosayachid and you right now we can have multiple people right we can have multiple people carrying weasels those weasels can each, can each chase mice which right, right those are like first circle Sachem talks about stuff like that, right? So the first paragraph of Sachem is a term paper. There's a sugi, which is a term paper where somebody <laughs> somebody was assigned to say, right, take every question of probability in shots and represent it using weasels and mice. All right. We spent like two weeks on it in Shiva and I did not understand it at all. <laughs> all right. Well, probably it's because I think I think it's often misunderstood because people think it's about the cases. It's not about the cases, it's a term paper on probability. Right, where you, you have to represent the variables as weasels or mice. The probabilities are still very confusing. Yeah, oh, I'm really sorry. <laughs> but it's not, I think it's much easier to understand that if you get right, if you get that's what's happening. Right. That you know, don't take the case, don't take the case, the details of the cases. Um, you know, like, don't ask practical questions about the cases. Right. What happens if the mouse what happens if the mouse only has three legs? Oh right. the mouse is a variable. Right. The weasel is a variable. Right. It has very specific odds, right? How do you know that they're exactly 50% of mice or right? Who cares? In this problem, right? The rules of the, the variables are constituted there. Right, right. If it turned out like if if the case depends on fifty percent of mice being white and only forty nine percent of white of, of mice are white, so we'll use voles instead until we right, until we get some species where it's fifty percent. Uh, this is a question that they gave the Gush students. Which students? No, no, this is Gemara. I think they gave it to Amora, right? Some Amora was 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 tasked with the job of produce a right produce a sugya that so we can all memorize it, right? And you create that yourself. Is a great framework. We talked about how you know some people create sugya. Mm-hmm. Right, they're constitutive in terms of sugya. They're not regulatory. Some people just interpret the sugya, and some people make you realize that a topic exists which didn't previously exist. Mm-hmm. And that's right. Real creativity is when something is not when somebody reorganizes an existing topic that makes you understand that a topic exists. Yeah. It's for example, perhaps when Warren Brandeis created privacy. Right, no one knew there was a legal thing called privacy, and then all of a sudden there was, and right, and maybe they invented it, and maybe or maybe they just noticed it. But it's different, right? Everyone else is everyone else is talking about what they're talking a topic they created. And so I think that before that sugya might be no one understood, right? That there was such a thing as probability. Yeah. In halacha, right? And that right, then, mm-hmm. yeah, then you could generate from that sugya eventually you get to Ravnach and Rabinovich uh doctorate about probability in Talmud. And uh, and Professor uh, Aaron Price, I think it was at Yale, that's the right name. Who wrote, right, who tried to reduce all the laws of Sveikot to uh, and Sveik Sveikot to genuine 
right, to, to genuine rules of probability. And um, I'm not convinced. I think Halakha has its own probability structures. Um, but okay. All right. Wow, it's a long way to do with that. Actually, starting Shari Yasher. <laughs> Shari Yasher. Okay, so let's... So, uh, that's the that's the, the Gemara that we're starting with makes this distinction as to whether right, whether, right, whether you bring an Asham Toloi anytime there's a doubt or you only bring an Asham Toloi in the case of a certain kind of doubt, namely that being the kind of doubt that can retrospectively be clarified. Okay. So now let's read, um, let's read uh, what Rabbi Ozer says um, and then Let's see um, both about the stakes, and I hope we'll have time to get back to the Mashari um, Yosher itself. So he says, it is a canonical principle of Talmudic law that where a given course of action will entail the uncertain but plausible transgression of biblical prohibition, right? That course of action is to be regarded as uh, prohibited. This is what we call Suffolk Derei Solofim. Okay, now, pl- now uncertain but plausible is a... Um, is uh, already you know a push language because you can claim that any time that you the threshold for for it the threshold the threshold for prohibition can be fifty percent, right? He's working on the assumption that the threshold of prohibition is mir hamatsui, right? Mir hamatsui is a standard of, of plausibility which is not equal likelihood. Okay, um, and it's not clear that the Rashba goes that far. I don't you know he does right. So we have to, but there is there is a status of uncertainty. Uh, of, right, where the odds of it being prohibited are fifty percent or less, in which, according to the according to the Rashba, right, you um, there is a biblical prohibition against engaging in this action. Right, the Rashba holds that Savi Deraisa the Chumra is itself a Deraisa principle. Um, okay, all of you get immediately right because we've done Chasishir. The question is: Is it the same? Just like Chazishir, is it the same biblical principle, or is it right, or is there a separate pro- biblical prohibition against engaging in possibly, right, uh, implausibly, or let's say he's right, implausibly forbidden actions? I think it'd be difficult to argue that you get carried for doing a suffix carried thing. Good, that's true. Also, even if you hold the Chazishir, it's the same issue. Right, you don't get you know, it'd be right. the same issue, but a different punishment. Right, but you don't get blah, 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 mm-hmm. right? It's the same, same it's, it's, it's the same question. Those who haven't seen um, Rabbi Yitzchak Adler's book, Lumdus. So he does uh, right, the, the point of the book. You can challenge every reading of every Rishon in it, but the basic thing he does is he sets out fundamental structures of brisker thought, and one of them is when you have laws regulating aspects of a broad set of laws, you always have to ask: is is that regulation part of each law, or does it create its own thing? So Katsishir is one example, and uh, Suffolk is another example. Lifnei Iver, right? If you, if you get somebody to do the other action, does it right? Uh, right, is that is that a, gen- a separate prohibition, or is it absorbed into others? And you have standard nafkaminas. Uh, if if the prohibition of right, so punishment is not necessarily nafkamina, but your hergal yavor is a nafkamina, right? Right. If I have to, I have to die rather, rather than kill somebody, I have to die rather than get rather than cause somebody else to kill somebody. Right. Does it become your hergal yavor also? Uh, right. It's not clear what chasishir and resicha would be, but something resicha. Right. Do I have to die rather, right, rather than possibly kill somebody? Those are some of the right. Some of the documents is right. Love it has the rules of a love versus a say. Is it both? Right. You can right, you can ask the question. Every one of those you can ask. You can say, okay, there's a set of laws that apply generically to all the, to all laws, right? And they apply, but they apply generically to different categories of laws. So which categories does this law fit into? Right. That you can read about this book. It has much more jargon than the but uh, but if you read it, you'll have a, you know you'll have a very fine 
if you, if you absorb that kind of book, a very fine introduction to, you, to like the 13 basic Brisker moves. Um, okay. Um, okay. So the Rama, however, says that this that um, says that this is a Drabanan, at least on the 50% case, right? I think there's some ambiguity going back and forth. It would be better, I think, probably in this article if we just treated the 50-50 case and left this, we moved from plausible to equally likely. So in a case where the odds are 50-50 of a biblical violation, according to the Rambam, uh, according to the Rambam, there's a biblical prohibition to do it. And according to, sorry, according to the Rashba, there is a biblical prohibition to do it. And according to the Rambam, there is a rabbinic prohibition. But biblically, if I am facing a piece of meat that has an exactly 50% chance of being trafe, I'm allowed to eat. Well, depends how you define allowed. <laughs> Under the constitutive rules of halakha. Assuming the halakha is there's, there's no prohibition. <laughs> yeah, right. Sorry, right. <laughs> Assuming that laws of halakha are constituted and there is no independence, independent source of normativity, right? Exactly right, right? So then, right, under the, there is no legal halakhic prohibition against eating this piece of meat, even though there's a 50% chance that it is the kind of meat that halakha doesn't want me to eat. And everything that is not prohibited is permitted. Assuming that, right, it's, right the halakha is the only source of normativity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what would it mean for it to be? Right, if it's not prohibited, how would it not be permitted? What's the alternative? It's a binary state. Okay. Well, actually, there are situations where the king can only move one one square, but right. that would move him into check, and so he can't put that. Right, that's a rule, right? So because that would be a yeah, rule saying the king can't move into check, right? Right, that's still part of the rules of chess, right? You can't say, like you have you can't say, well, under the rules of chess, the king, right, the king can move there, but I know that in two moves it will be made. And that means that the king, by moving there, will be committing suicide. And suicide is immoral. That is the metaphor that I, I might be doing something kosher, but I'm going to lose the game. So what is the purpose of following Falacha? Whatever your answer Oh, good. Is, now, you're right, so, this, now you're saying the point of playing chess is to win. Right? That already puts a whole new valence on chess. The point is not to play. The point is to win. That also probably legitimates cheating in a certain way, unless you claim that no, if I cheat, I haven't won the game, right? I mean, now we have all sorts of moral conversations about chess. Also, it's immoral for the king to commit suicide, but not the other cases. Oh, well, like to kill. <laughs> According now, no, you're you're now you're, you're you're mixing metaphors within the game of chess, the constitutive yeah. game of chess. Uh -huh. The purpose of the rules is to then play the game. The right. purpose of the game is to win. What? Like if you look at any set of rules, why do you say that? It doesn't. It doesn't say what the purpose of the, the, game, purpose is. Of the game. The purpose of the game is to play the, the game. Is to play the game. One person will win. One person will lose. Both people fulfill the purpose of playing the game. Right. This is a big thing thrown by sacks that like you only understand the purpose of the system from outside the system. Right. I can come in and I can say, for me, the purpose of the game is to learn because I'm going to lose this game. I'm playing uh -huh. against this person. Right. That's fine. I can come in and I can say, the, you know, whatever. I understand that there can be personal purposes. However, within the solid constituted mm -hmm. um, game itself, there's winning and losing. Yeah, and but neither of them is, pref is preferred. It doesn't say that winning is preferred to losing. Because there's two people playing the game. It's, They're both right. Why do you get the, Why do you get there? What one person? It just says how you would win and how you would yeah. lose. It doesn't say which one you should do. I, I think for categorizing categorizing that as among the personal. Right. Yeah. So. No, it's interesting. All right. I'll buy it. Uh, okay. So right. So now the question is: So um, the Rashba tries to prove his position against the Rambam, among other things, on the basis of 
of Ashram Talmud. What he says is that if at the time I make the decision, the law said there is nothing wrong with doing this, how can I post facto require atonement? I didn't do anything wrong. But he claims that that depends on the machloket about one chaticha and two chatichas. Um, I just wondering, can you explain yeah. again why you're saying that it's 50%? If something is 50% trait, then you can't eat it? 50%. There's a chance it's trait. 50% chance it's trait. So, so halacha, you can't eat it. But that's, but that, the question is whether the halacha that you can't eat it is derais or derabana. Okay. According to the Rashba, it's derais. So the Torah itself says mm-hmm. that there's a 50% chance that it's trait, you can't eat it. And according to the Rambam, if you were following just the Torah, Rambam? the Rambam, right? mm-hmm. you're following just the Torah, go ahead and eat it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, the, right. So the Rashba says that at least in the case of one chatifa, right, where right, so the argument is, I think is generally understood as in the case where there are two chatifas, so you find out later that what you did was a prohibited. Right. There's a point at which it's disambiguated, and we can say, okay, you need atonement now because now we know that what you did was a forbidden action. Because as it turned out that the other piece of meat was kosher, that means the piece of meat you ate was treif. And now we can say you accidentally violated a prohibition. But in the case where there's only one chatifa, so if you're bringing an atonement, you always have to bring an atonement for an action that is defined as maybe prohibited. And an action that's defined as maybe prohibited is actually an action that is defined as permitted. According to the Rambam. So the Rashba says, therefore, I am right and the Rambam is wrong because if the Rambam were correct, it would be impossible to bring an Ashram Toloi right, for, a, right, for a, an ambiguous action which cannot be disambiguated. Okay, right, so that's the, that's the, Rashba's, um, that's the Rashba's claim, right, which um, Rayozer presents in a very formal way. Right? The argument is, if there is no statutory prohibition on the bottom of page one, it's page two, I guess, right? if there is no statutory prohibition against performing Act X, then one incurs no liability. One cannot, including atonement, mm-hmm. for perform right for performing Act X. Um, um, one does incur liability in performing acts for presenting uncertain but plausible violations of biblical provisions. Therefore, it is not the case that there is no statute. Right, right, follow right. This is actually interestingly framed as the right. right There's well, a version of the Rashi's argument, right? That if it's mutter, if it's mutter, it can't require kapara. Right, this does require kapara, therefore it's not mutter, and that's basically the way of the the, uh, the, way, the, the way the way of framing his argument. Okay, so now moving on, he says for Hashem and Shkap, this premise, right, the claim that for an action to require kapara, it has to have been usur, represents a failure in conceiving the range of our responsibilities as persons. Right, this is a very, really I think the. The, the formulations are, are just astoundingly beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, reiterating his rejection of the Chef Schmeitza, that, that's how right? we, 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 I elided the, the move in the Chef Schmeitza after the Rashba. All right, he explains how it can be that while it is not prohibited to perform an act representing uncertain violation, right, it's not, suffix is mutter, all right, suffix is not usr, nonetheless, the performance of that act can constitute a transgression. All right, so that's the big kiddush, right? It's not usur, but it's an avera. 
if we were translating to Hebrew, right? That's what tra transgression is literally an avera, right? a crossing, a cross, a crossing over. Um, okay, acts involving uncertain transgressions have not been rendered permissible. It's only the Torah hasn't specifically ushered them, right? So the assumption that claim is that the actions have a valence in advance, which is either us or a motor. And therefore, if the, right, if the Torah doesn't say it's mutter, that doesn't mean, right? The Torah, sorry, the Torah doesn't say it's usher, that doesn't mean it's mutter. It just means that the Torah leaves it at whatever it was before. Now, the Torah has the right to take things that, right, that were intrinsically usher and make them mutter, right? If the Torah said, if the Torah said, suffix de oraisa lekula, right, if that were a principle, so then, it would be mutter in the way that we say suffix mamzer is right is mm -hmm. right is mutter. That's not a a mamzer isn't aser, right? Mm -hmm. That's this is not a mamzer. Yeah. But in the case of suffix, argues in the case of suffix, regular suffix iser, Shemeshkav argues what all the Torah is saying is that we will not impose a status of aser on it. We're just, right, but if you believe that we're engaged in regulatory and not constitutive behavior. Then it might, right? Then it might still be, uh, it might still be forbidden. And you can even imagine a double forbidden. Forbidden. It says forbidden. It would still be not very to do it, right? Let's right. 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 I wouldn't say the same as forbidden. Right. Okay, because we're running out of the point. That's well, that's, so you're assuming forbidden is legal language, right? So we have to, right? So yeah. we have to get, go through it. Okay. Um, right. Uh, what what the Ramam says, according to Shemeshkav, is that the laws of the Torah. Do not include, don't include, right? There's no law in the Torah in addition to uh, a further statute, right? A specific halacha prohibiting doing an action that represents a plausible violation of the, of the, of the first level of Yisur, right? There isn't a new halacha, like, you know, that, like, just like according to Rish Lakish, there's no halacha forbidding Chatzishir. According to the Ramam, there's no halacha forbidding Safir. But you can imagine a world in which we say, okay, Chatzishir isn't Usr. But the pork is still pork. So if you ate the pork, you still ate pork. You just didn't violate the law against eating pork. And so they would say, but and now our question is whether pork is something that you shouldn't eat, or pork is just a neutral food until the Torah says you shouldn't eat it. Hmm. All right. So he says it's just like that's true about Khasishir, it's true about it's true about suffix, right? You can say. You can say the Torah didn't say I, I should. The Torah said, didn't say I couldn't eat this meat because it might be right, uh, because it might be pork. Okay, but it, it still might be pork, so I shouldn't eat it. Not because the Torah told me not to eat this thing, which might not be pork, but because I'm not supposed to eat pork. Okay. Um, right. So, in considering the performance of an act representing a plausible transgression transgression of prohibition, therefore. The deliberating agent is left without determinative statutory guidance. The halacha doesn't answer the question whether you should eat it or not, but that doesn't mean that the religion is neutral about whether you should eat it or not. Okay, there's no right, there's no right for Shkap, however, the absence of direct statutory instruction simply does not entail the absence of salient normative guidance, right? So that's the big move, right? It's claiming that there are normative statements, right? No, right? You can say ought. About whether you or about the action of eating this thing, which might or might not be trait, even according to the Rama. The language he says is it is vadaishura it is certainly appropriate, right? So appropriate is a new kind of moral, is a new kind of moral language. Ought. 
which does not mean the same thing as Metsuva or even as right, Rishus, right? But it also doesn't mean the same thing as Chayev, right? I, I, mean, I, mean, I ought not could to argue it's not Rishus. It's Rishus legally, but it's not Rishus religiously. Religi- right? Or whatever. There is a normative framework in which it is meaningful to say, I ought not to eat this. Even though it's mutter, and they ought not is not because there's something called midas chasidus in the realm of the law also, that would also be a legal framework. I, th- I, don't, I don't think that he's just reducing this to categories that Allah incorporates. Because there's no, right, if the, if, there, if the Allah does that, it's, right, it's doing it on the basis of something other than Torah, the text of Torah, right? There's nothing in the Torah that says, right, that establishes midas chasidus or anything like that, right? It's just the Torah says this. Doesn't say anything about that. I think about it and I say I shouldn't do that. Well, it's not like you thought about it. It's that. Because all thought about it. Okay, how did they do it? Right. That's that's not our uh, right. He's putting us in the position of Chazal. Uh, right. We could that. We're all we're doing is trusting Chazal's judgment. Right. Chazal don't create the the moral valence. They recognize it in this case. Right. Okay, right. So he's doing right, what we do in SPM, right? We put you in the position of producing halacha as opposed to as opposed to consuming it. That's right. He, he frames it as the deliberating agent that's left with no guidance. So we are the deliberating agent. If you say we're just following Chazal, so we're not the deliberating agent, right? We're just right, we're we're just the uh, the rule following agent. Okay, so Shkap here introduces it's right, is it is certainly appropriate according to the way of the Torah for one who is solicitous of his soul to recoil from uncertain prohibitions. So that is a right, that is a really interesting line, um, right? That he, he understands this meaning. Shkap here introduces a distinctive mode of ought, right? A, right, a way of a language of a language of should and should not uh, that is not halachic. In addition to independent of the qualifying as either for prohibited or not, us or not, proposed actions can qualify as more or less appropriate for a given agent to perform. Uh, right. So this is right. So he's trying to introduce. Uh, an ethical or aesthetic language that has normative implications. Um, in this case, Shkup argues the fact that the proposed agent represents the plausible transgression of prohibition gives the agent a reason to refrain from the action, um, despite the fact that the action is not directly prohibited by statutes. The basis for this reason is simply the fact that the action may in fact turn out to be a transgression, and then you will be responsible. Okay, so that's Roshim and Shkup. As opposed to this, for Heller, that's the Shev Shemaitza, such open-endedness is a conceptual impossibility. If an act is not prohibited to an agent at the time of the act's performance, that act cannot come to have constituted a transgression. Or, or equivalently, if the act comes to have constituted a transgression, it cannot have been permitted at the time of the performance. Schaub's intervention is to hold open precisely this structure of normative possibility, that genuinely permissible actions can nonetheless turn out to have been transgressions. And he argues that Rosh Hashanah is therefore championing what turns out more as moral luck, because you don't have to bring the korban if it turns out that it wasn't true. So you can't say that you have to bring the korban because you did something, because you did this wrong thing, right? You, right there's an op that you shouldn't engage in ethical prohibition, so you need kapara for having done this, even though it's not usur. No, you, have to, you only bring the korban if it turns out that it was usur. Well, don't you bring the korban before you know whether it's usur or not? Well, you, sorry, you bring the korban, yeah. but if it turns out the other way around, 
right? If it turns out the other way, right? You bring the carbon because it might be that your action will turn out to have been a transgression. If it, right. if you turn out, if it turns out, if it turns out that you find out it was kosher, right? If you discover in the, the right, I engage in this action. It might be it might be trafe, It might be kosher. Mm-hmm. A week later, I find out no, it's certainly kosher. I don't need kapara. There's the no, no. Once I find out, that's, that's yeah. if, if it's the kind of action that I could or could not find out, right? Then, right, right. Then, right. Then everyone, right, that everyone agrees. It's the kind of action where I couldn't find out. No, it's kind of action. Everyone agrees yeah. with two chatifa, where I can find out. I have to bring, I bring a korban until I know. Mm-hmm. But if I know, then if I find out that it was asur, I bring a, I bring a chatas. I'm an ashen mm-hmm. And if, I, if it turns out it was kosher, I don't bring any korban at all. The case that we, that I read in the was you already designated the ashen. Right. So you're like, I don't know. Gonna bring my ashram. Then I don't know. You I'm, find out. I find out. Don't bring right, it's not an ashram anymore. Oh, so just what do you do with it? Is what That's right. That's the question. What do you do with it? But right, but if I engage in this action, right? So right, I haven't designated my ashram yet. I engage in this action. And right, so now I'm high of an ashram. I should designate an ashram. I haven't gotten around to it. And then I find out, oh, guess what? I was it was fine after all. I don't I don't need atonement at all. That's speaking to your idea back at the beginning that we're trying to constitute a society for social value in which we don't put ourselves in this position. So but he it, would disagree with that. Yeah, it can't be the action. But yeah, the, the point, the reason you introduce moral luck is because if it were the act, you could say, right, you could you could claim that, look, it's not usr, but it's wrong, and therefore, right, to, to engage in a doubtful usr, and therefore I have to make a korban for having done this wrong but not usr action. But if that were the case, there's no later information that would make me not fight with the korban. But in fact, there is, right? If it turns out that, right, even though I did a wrong but not usher thing in eating this piece of meat, but it turns out I got lucky, and it, right, so then I don't need anything. The kapara has to be, right, the kapara is for the, the, the inherent prohibition, right, for eating the pork and not for the action of doing something that might have been pork, according, right, according to the Roma. So this one would go by not intent, but rather consequence. Yes. But the consequences are a function of luck, right? That's why he says that this is an this is an endorsement of moral luck. Mm-hmm. And this is the Rambam. That is how he understands. That is how he, he understands or Shimon to be understand the Rambam. Okay, I could again, I could give other I could give other explanations. You know, talking that assumes that um, that that rightness and wrongness and atonement are related, and that not being a, that not bringing a korban reflects a lack of need for atonement as opposed to a lack of ability to gain atonement. All sorts of ways which I could interpret differently, but I mean, you, you, you still need atonement, but that Hashem teller is no longer the method of doing it. Right. So maybe I have to, you know, lash myself on the Yomud or whatever it may be for a long time. Maybe I have to go into exile. Right. All sorts of things. Yeah, and also I remember learning that, like, basically, um, since everything we since many people believe that everything is by divine providence, at least. I think like, yeah, I think basically we, there's a concept of divine providence. Therefore, like anything we accidentally do wrong, if it actually happened, like God forbid. Right, that's the talks about. Right, that's the Ramban, the Ramban talks about. Right, oh, okay, yeah. Right, so then that means that, yeah, it's just like somewhat connected to this topic. Yeah. That like, if we actually, I just to finish the point, like if we, if we did something wrong, even if it's by mistake and there's an actually wrong outcome, then it's some reflecting something on us. Even if it was unintentional. Okay. Um, that we're supposed to do chuva for, we should think like, oh, like I accidentally got, you know, like this person accidentally murdered somebody. So maybe they have some, like they have to work on their selves and like, cert- like maybe they really, you know, even if 
they didn't intend to murder maybe there's something wrong it says something so they, they should have checked my mezuzahs dang yeah. <laughs> okay let's not, let's, let's not let's not go there yet. let's not go there yet. okay let's let's skip to uh let's skip to page five um okay so in page five um which is actually the opening of the article, I believe. Oh. Uh, right, I just gave it to different orders. So mm. right, there are two quotes, right? One is uh, Bernard Williams, who is uh, Rabbi Sachs's Rebbe, uh, uh, who says that, you know, that we tend to think that, that we tend to be reductive about ethics and think that all forms of right and wrong are the same. And this is a piece that I, you know, that, that I have a, a lot of uh, sympathy for. I've written the same thing in my article on Kedusha, that there are different, Things there are different realms of value, mm -hmm. and uh, right, and we shouldn't reduce them, and they might contradict. All right, so I, I, my article is about attempting to reclaim the concept of kedusha, um, that uh, the holy and the good, the holy and the good and the moral and the pure are not the same. And there are things, there are things that are holy and good, and things that, that are, and are holy and bad, and things that are that are unholy, unholy and good, and things that are unholy and bad, and, right? And right, holy and impure. There's no reason that those categories can't have to be consistent with each other. Are you not defining holy as being, you know, kadosh in God has many different things of good. And it might be that they're all reconciled with God, but in the real world that we live in, things can be holy but not good. I think, right? That's a controversial piece. You can read it. Like, like people who spend all their time thinking about God and as a result utterly ignore the needs of the people around them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the side. I'm sorry. Right. Um, okay. The second thing is um, is that um, is a claim from Stanley Cavell, um, which is um, which says that people are of the belief, and right here he's directly attacking briskers, uh, but he's finding the equivalent of briskers in his universe. Right? <laughs> people think that. If you can say that the reason we're doing this is because there's a rule, that is enough. You don't have to explain why there's a rule. And all you need is to say, all you, once they know that they're acting in accordance with some form of consistency, then right, that satisfies them. Right, they don't have to ask the question whether they're right, whether consistent with what? Consistent with itself, right? That's what we're looking for, right? There's a rule. You're always supposed to behave this way. Good. Okay. So then, right, so Elizabeth Anscombe makes, uh, makes the claim that, um, that what happens in morality is that the, is that the halacha, the tendency to reduce all questions of should I or should I not do this to is it us or a mutter is not a uniquely Jewish or Orthodox phenomenon. It's a human phenomenon that rules tend to drive out all the other concepts of right and wrong. And people, right, and the stronger the rules get, the more people tend to think that all there is, right, is the rules. Um, right? When law, with its absolute verdicts, becomes, right, because you can't paskin, right, according to law, well, right, that, but the argument is, right, I paskin that this is the right, this is the thing you should do, but you should feel very bad about it. Because it violates another principle, right? So we have ways, perhaps, of representing things like that in law, like the chuya, right? But um, basically, law paskins asra mutter. And right, whereas in a moral language, you might say, 
you know, there's a difference between doing it enthusiastically and doing it right and doing it grudgingly uh, and doing, you know, doing it right. So I try to some extent to counter this by putting all those languages into halakha, right? It's part of what I'm, the way I'm teaching halakha is by saying that halakha actually tries to represent the whole conflict of value that isn't just about itself. Right, so claiming it's an example where we say this is mutter, but only if you have pure kavana, is a way of saying that this is this is a thing you have to do, but you really shouldn't. Right, right. So we're trying to create all these right, all these off the point beyond itself. But Asko's argument is, and I think that's true, that most people, particularly most people who function legal systems, don't think of the law that way. Particularly, most people who what? Those people who work within legal systems, mm-hmm. right, think that the law is all there is. And once you have decided the question of whether mm-hmm. the law says to do it or not, then there's nothing else about that action. It's just either do it or don't do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. So she argues that you know, the world is biased against the way I like to understand halakha. <laughs> and that the tendency of a society is always to become pan halakhic. And it takes mm-hmm. active intervention to try and say that, no, actually, the law is not mm-hmm. purely constitutive, the law is regulative, and, those, and the law sometimes has to impose frameworks on a reality that is more complex than the law itself, right, than, than, yeah. than the categories of law. And what Rabbi Ozer argued... Did you say the word pan halacha? everything is halacha, right? All decisions are just a question of halacha. So you're saying you don't, you don't really agree with that? I don't agree with that, no. Okay. Um, so Anscombe... Argue, right, so Alex Ozer argues that what Roshim and Shkup is doing is making exactly that kind of intervention. And it's right, it's saying that most mm-hmm. people think that Suffolk Lachumra, Suffolk Lakula, once it's Lakula, right, right, once it's once it's Lakula, it's Mutter. So, what further question could you ask about it? The only question you could ask about it is a pragmatic question. Maybe it's a bad, I, right, maybe it will lead to bad things. And so then, we'll, so the, so then we ask, okay, did the Rabbanon try to choose to reify that into law or not? Um, right, but he says, look, even right, but he says that the, the correct question is okay, the law can't decide what, right, that whether uh, that you can't do this, but it doesn't mean that you that the, that the decision that the law left open is neutral. It might be you still shouldn't do it, and you still shouldn't do it for basically the same reason, perhaps, that the law said you shouldn't do it if you're certain. You shouldn't do it for pragmatic reasons, no, you shouldn't do it because it's wrong. Ah, that's a good question, right? That's good. Whatever's wrong about eating pork. It was wrong about eating pork, not right. Whatever, right? Whatever, whatever it is that made it us. Or it could be separately, you might say that there is a good in obeying the law, and the good of obeying the law um, right, extends morally to the good of, 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 follow, of avoiding risks of disobeying the law. Or not even risks, maybe like the spirit of the law. Could be a spirit, right? Could be a I'm, I'm trying to, to do it within the hakira whether it becomes part of the other part of the iser or right. is an independent um, iser. Also, then, like, how do we then understand the rabbanon coming and saying it's iser? <laughs> right. So I think that <laughs> you might argue that for Shimon, right? The, right. Since the Ramam agrees it's iser to rabbanon, so all the rabbis are doing is saying, well, we thought about it. We realized that there was right that it actually constitutes a transgression, even though it's not iser according to the Torah. And therefore, we chose not, we chose in order to guide our followers, right, right, we chose to tell you that it's us, or not because we wanted you just to think of it as us, or we wanted you to understand that this is wrong. It's very frustrating when that happens. <laughs> what, when they make rules, but they're just to make you realize something? No, when like, you, ha- you had a moral choice, and then you don't have the moral choice anymore. <laughs> uh, okay, right, so that, that's, that's, so that is the question of whether, you know, 
whether how one relates to halacha, if one relates to halacha as as the removal of moral choice, then you understand why people should resist Paskin, because you're taking away moral choice from agents. Mm-hmm. It might be you're just pushing the moral choice down the line, or it might be that it's supposed to be educational, because the law covers so few cases. And that's Ray Wurzberger's argument, essentially, that, uh, and Berkowitz, right? They both argue that halacha can't, an extension of the Ramban about, about Basita Yashar Vatovin and Kedoshim Tiv, that the Torah can't forbid everything, they argue that life confronts you with so many choices that are more complicated than the rules of halacha allow you. There are often so many factors that can't be boiled down to simple suffix. So the purpose of halacha is to train you to make those decisions. It doesn't deprive you of moral agency. Rabbi Wurzberger's version of it, which I really love, is uh, there were two, right, writing this in the early 70s, there are two critiques of halacha. One group of, one group of, uh, one group of people critique halacha because it turns everyone into moral automatons. It tells you what to do. It takes away all your moral agency. You're nothing but, you know, you're just robots. And the other group of people critique halacha for saying it doesn't answer any of the important questions like whether you should go to Vietnam. <laughs> so I said, let's look at the two of you together and say that doesn't make sense. Right? Right? If it doesn't tell you what to do about the most important questions, it can't be turning you into an automaton. So it must mm-hmm. be that the goal is to, right, is to, is to teach you the correct way to right, the correct answers to the easy questions and leave you to make the right, to make the big decisions on your own based on what you've learned. Um, right, that halacha is a discipline for training the soul um, to make decisions as opposed to a as opposed to a, a, a comprehensive set of rules for life. You can buy or not buy it. Yeah, I think I have a similar like opinion without like having like completely thought it through. Which is that, like, I think that basically there would, I think, yeah, I think there would be no way, at least for me and most people, to actually understand values very uh, deeply enough without learning the Torah and halacha. So it's like, you can't just be like, oh, this is what I think. And like, you never learn the Torah and halacha. Okay. So basically, like, it's where we could, yeah, I guess where we could learn values from and also in many cases, like where we could, yeah, where we could learn it from and where we can get them maybe, but mostly where we could learn it from. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good, and like a lot of them, we wouldn't have been able to come up to on our own because they're from Hashem. Maybe. I don't think, uh, that's that's part of it, I think. Like, I know people that like spent their whole life like trying to figure out like how to be a good person and like are really like care and things like that, but they never learned Torah and, and Talmud. And I, and I think that they came to like many of the wrong conclusions and like completely unintentionally, but it's because they don't have that aspect of like getting something from Hashem. It's not their fault. Like they just well, never moral read luck. that book, you know. Like so that's moral luck. We can also talk about yeah, but we can also talk about the people who do spend their time studying Torah also get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? That is yeah, the Torah is not, in, not infallible. In mm-hmm. learning Torah is not an infallible production of moral morality. Sadly, uh, mm-hmm. where people learn Torah and still get those kind of questions wrong. That's true. But so the purpose of luck is to train us. Yeah. How is it that once trained? So we can talk about whether yeah, that we can talk about whether the results, the, the purpose is to train, you know, to to an objective set of decisions, and the purpose is to train people to make the best set of decisions in, their, in accordance with their personality and accordance with context. No system is infallible. It trains you. Maybe you make maybe all we need to do is to make better decisions than you would otherwise, and it never gets you to to, to perfection, of course. Well, that's right. It's it's it's. Imp- Everyone who tries to see halacha as character education or any form of education as character education, right? Nobody's ever found a way of testing whether it works. Because you know, at most, you could test. How you come up, how, like, by what rubric would you test? 
Yes. I mean, it's not a question of you know setting up your control samples. It's, you know, you don't even like. There's no definitions here. This is right. Very. You know, mm -hmm. you do this, and then you'll know what to do. And the most you could test is that students make is you could conceivably try to to show the students make the decisions that you want them to make. More that you know, more. I like, wanted us to, to to have certain values. Why would I should not just say this is the value? We did. He said this. He said yes, but they said question to you. And there's there's just contradictions between values. Why would there be values. an entire Torah of you know carbonate and stuff rather than an entire just language. Of... It's just language, and language can be interpreted. You know, so you need the whole set of you need rules, you need broad statements, you need stories, all sorts of ways. Because we educate by triangulating among you know among all these different modes of epistemology. There are things you can. I can teach you something abstractly, and, and you know, of course, and it, it might really resonate for you, and somebody else might not have the faintest idea what I'm talking about until I tell them a story. Oh, so you differentiate your teaching. Sure. <laughs> but I don't think that, that there's, I don't think that most people only learn from, you know, I think that there might be, there might be the same person might understand one rule perfectly and need a story for another, right? I'm not committed to, uh, not committed to doing it that way. Although people argue about mental levels. Um, it might be that it depends on whether it's an area that relates, that relates to your personal experience or not, that it relates, relates to your personal experience, you're fine with rules. And if you have no personal experience, you need stories. Um, right, it might be that part of the goal of education is to enable you to develop empathy such that you can understand stories, or that people who aren't naturally empathetic don't get anything through stories. Uh, as I'm just, I don't want to reduce individual people to that, but sure, um, you know, you need to teach in multiple ways, and then you also need to know. If I, if I don't understand stories; it's kind of silly. Yeah, I always love telling a story about um, Churchill. Churchill allegedly had a math teacher who was supposed to teach math you know, using using visual aids, and so right, so. It, it, Teacher explains one plus one equals two, but larger thing is and draws it understand it. The teacher draws a box around the one, and a box around the one, and a box around the two, and says, What you see now? So if you didn't understand, you were supposed to draw two, right? Draw one box and one box, and then right, and then draw two boxes together and show one plus one equals two, right? Just thought you were supposed to draw boxes. So that's always happens, right? There are teachers who tell stories but don't understand what stories are. Yeah. Um, and so stories don't help. Students don't ever, students don't learn. This is you know part of the joke of the stories, that's why Churchill leads. It ends up endorsing the raid on the Dardanelles and in World War One and um, and and it's has made disastrous mm -hmm. strategies in World War Two because it can't add. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so like when you talk about quantities of warships on either side, he's totally lost because his first grade math teacher uh, failed to it. He becomes chancellor of the Exchequer, which makes it even funnier. No, I'm, I'm not sure I understood that story. <laughs> the teacher's told, right? You know, yeah. the way you're supposed to teach, right? They're supposed to teach you math by using abstractions. No, that, that's my point. But the story was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, was, yeah. I, I was unprepared yeah. for the subtlety. Yeah. <laughs> um, I fear that many of my example illustrations are not actually uh, disambiguated. Um, okay, so let's take a look. We're a little late. We're running a little over time. I want to just take a look at the on the first page of Hebrew. <laughs> Yeah, so it could be that like you work all your time and trying to instill your moral values and decisions, and what they get is your sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> your moral luxury. <luck> <laughs> um, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <So> something <laughs> can't claim they had no effect. Um, all right. So, uh, so in Sharia, sure. So let's write, let's read the the section beginning Gimel, which is which is a section that uh, was really translated. Um, 
So as it turns out by a section of Lamadella, right? So the Torah, they're not permitted actively by the Torah. It's just the Torah doesn't prohibit against, doesn't prohibit them, doesn't caution you against them. The And therefore, that right, what we still have is not a permitted action, but an action which might be forbidden. Right? So that's the right the, the move. He's in, the move that um, that the way Rosh does, which I think is a slightly different than the way Riozer presents it, is he's talking about the it's, it's a language problem, right? The we call the re- reification of Isser, right? When you make Isser uh, status a real thing and not just an abstract, not just the construction of the rules. So if the Torah said it was per- that this action is permitted, so now there is no element of prohibition left in it. The right the, right, the rules constituted as permitted, but instead you say no. The action, the object, the, the thing itself, the pork, right, is actually something which is usser, and the action is something which might be an action of eating of eating isser. And all the Torah says is, we're not going to say that it's permitted. In which case, it would, we would wipe away the fact that pork is prohibited because this is a permitted action. All we're saying is that there's this reality that it's pork which is usser, and we are not going to we're not going to say anything about this action. So what this action remains is an action that might be usher. It's not an action that is usher, right? That's part of the rules. It's an action, right? We stand outside the rules. These are the rules. And now we can say, hmm, what about this action? Well, it might be usher. And we can answer that question without asking the question. That, without There's a way to answer that question other than by saying, well, what do the rules say about things that might be usher? Right, that's the move, right? That the, the 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 question, what should I do when something might be usher, right, can be answered without appeal to the rules. You have to look at the rules first to see if the rules say anything. And if the rules say anything, they're controlling. But if the rules say nothing, the question is still there. Okay, so that's right, that's that's the big move. Umishachas al nafsho, vadai dura'uilo al pidera so there are right two there are two points of language there that are really 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 interesting that sound very much like what Rabbi Ozer said. If I just read this thing, I would have no doubt. I think that he was right. He used the language of Raui, which is right, which is appropriate. Appropriate. That sounds like he's trying to create a normative language, and he says Alpidera So Derechatora sounds like he's trying to appeal to some sense of Torah beyond Halakha. Right, it's Raui al It's not Asr, it's not Mutter. It's Raui al Piderachatura. So it sounds like he's appealing to some broader moral language, which we would which might be something like Midat Chasidut or Vasite Asheratov or things like that. So it's a defined moral. Yeah, uh, aesthetic, whatever you want to call it, right? Non-halachic language. Right. Um, but the challenge that is but he also says Umi Shechas al Nafsho. What does it add? Just say. Vadai Rui, not Vadai Rui Lo, Vadai right, right Vadai Rui Al Pidera Chatora Lifrosh Misafik Yisur. Mishachas Al Nafsho sounds like it is a um, a pragmatic claim. You do it for your own sake. Mm-hmm. Now, how does that come in? So, um, right. So, if you look at the next boldest section, we get to the end of right at the bottom line. He says the Chandelufid Ati. 
The Torah was not compelled initially to command you not to eat the Safek Yisr. Because people will anyway be concerned about the health of their own souls. Mm-hmm. So, right, that, that's right. That already you know, introduces like much more pragmatic language. Do this because, uh, because you'll, right, because it might turn out badly and that will be bad for your soul. Why will it be bad for your soul? Now we're, right, we're circular. It builds into the kind of arguments that claim that like the thing that precedes Torah is a presumption that you ought not to commit suicide, a uh, presumption that you, right, that you want olam haba, right, and that we just, right, we just have sort of, you know, sort, they're not moral givens about, about the actions, they're moral givens about the consequences for you. I should do, I should, right, I should do um, the thing which makes me more likely to get olam haba, and then I have to make the claim, so why is it that the suffix iser, that doing a suffix iser will, is more likely, is not doing a suffix iser, is more likely to get the yellow haba. Well, the answer is because if it turns out to have been usser, then God will blame me. Why? We haven't answered that question. Right? We, we haven't explained why it's wrong to do a suffix iser, except in the sense that God will hold us responsible for it, and we should do the things that are healthy for our soul. Mm-hmm. But we haven't given meaning to help, right, to what gives health to our soul yet. Mm-hmm. So the question for me is, does does this language actually point to some kind of language of value that turns out to more than don't do things that make that don't do things that make God less happy with you? And then we just have a question like, how do we know the other things that God will make happy? Like, right? You know, why is why Mary's language? Why doesn't God just make clear what things will make happy with you or not? Uh, right? God should say that suffigister is. Suffolk is also is also us, because I'll be unhappy with you if it turns out badly. And that's what they're doing. doing, right? <laughs> they're not taking away moral choices. There are no moral choices. Well, they're clarifying that there were moral choices that wasn't moral. For you. <laughs> not a moral choice. It's not about right and wrong. It's right. just about right. It's just about reward and punishment. Hmm. Right. So that's the question, right? Chasal naf show. So what does chasal naf show mean? Right. Does chas we have pity on your soul? Does that mean we don't want your soul to be corrupted? Or does it mean that you don't want your soul to be punishable? Right? The language he uses mitachad, right? He uses fear. So maybe you don't want your soul to, to worry. To worry. Yeah. I mean, this, this is Nashan Tolut. We don't know. And you could very easily say, mm-hmm. no, Asham, you don't know. It's not a problem. Don't bring anything. And then your soul doesn't worry. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. now I know. But this is Mashantal Louis. It's creating the situation where your soul doesn't know. And that's a real, I mean, that, that. Does Mashantal Louis the create the situation or does it recognize the situation? Yeah, the response to it doesn't create the situation. But it does because by its very existence. I mean, if, there were if, no, the, if instead Torah says, or I don't know where they came from, sorry. Um, but if it says, you know, you don't know, it's a suffix, there's no Mashantal, there's nothing. You're good, you're clean, you're fine. Do it, don't do it, whatever you want. But instead, it's not shown to do it. There's uh-huh. something going on here. This is a situation now. But is but do you think that there is that the the fact that the sham totally creates the situation? You think it creates the psychology because I wouldn't know about it, right? That you're arguing clearly, right? Because right that the Torah by choosing to have a sacrifice for it makes me psychologically con- uh, conscious. But the question is, you're saying exactly the opposite of that. But right, right, the question, right? But it's not just right. The, the but the argument we're trying to make is that no, whether you were conscious of it or not. Right, you actually did something that was wrong. And what the Torah is doing by creating Hashem Toloi 
is either providing a way out for those people who correctly are conscious of it, or as you say, right, trying to make us aware. But that was eating, putting ourselves in a situation. I see this meat, one or two, and uh, it may or may not be okay. And rather than walking on by, I just eat it. And it right. might be okay, I might not, but I put myself in that situation. Okay. So Was that wrong? That's the question. So if the Torah says, you know, there's no Hashem, there's no Hashem to lose, there's nothing. There's no Chatat. Right. Um, you put yourself in the situation until you know the consequences, not the intent, then you're fine. Uh, but that's not what the Torah says. The Torah says there's an Hashem to Louis. You put yourself in this situation, and now you have to do an Hashem. You have to bring an Hashem. Right. But is the Torah telling me that so I will know that I had done something wrong, or is the Torah choosing to make it wrong when it wouldn't have been, when it might not have been? I think, Mary, are do you mean that like I think from your point of view, it's like you're in your case, like the person is see <clears throat> sees like the two pieces of meat, and they know one is not allowed, and the other. They know one of them is not kosher, and they're like making that choice, like consciously, and they're like they're making that decision because um, they could have just like left and like not eaten the meat. Uh, but it's possible that like in the Gemara, it's either that reading or it's the reading of like they just like forgot, like they no, were just no, like walking in their you have right, the case he's talking about. Case he's talking about just ate and they're like weren't thinking about it, and then later on they're like, oh shoot, like. I the wrong thing. Like, in the Gemara, you could, but but yeah. for Rosh yeah. right? The case he's right. talking about is where is Miriam's case, where we, you know. Although I mean, the last lines of in Loya Domina Safek, right? In, that sounds like he didn't recognize that there was a Safek, and he did it anyway. So all right, so the Asham Taloi comes. Asham Taloi comes if you didn't know, but the the right the, the question Shimon is dealing about is but is the case where you wouldn't bring an Asham Taloi because you did it deliberately. Right. In order to be an Hashem Taloi, right, Hashem Taloi has to be done. Has to be. You might have violated it accidentally. Right. You can't. You don't bring an Hashem Taloi. Sorry, my fault. Right. You don't bring an Hashem Taloi if you know that you're doing a stuff against it. Mm-hmm. Right. Hashem Taloi is like a chatat. It's only brought for shogi. Okay. But the so question. What I said. Yeah. Like, does that, yeah so you, you're right about Hashem Taloi, right? But what? the case. No, you're right about Hashem Taloi. Yes. Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, but I don't understand. Like, so I still don't. But really the question we're discussing, the right, is whether. In Hashem Taloi is what happens if you do an Avera B'Shogeg, so that implies that if you had done it B'Mezid, it would be wrong. Right? So if I have to bring an Hashem Taloi for having done accidentally eating something is 50%, that must mean that eating something which is deliberately 50% is doing the same thing worse. But the Ramam says that the something is 50%, I am allowed to. So how can I bring an atonement for doing something B'Shogeg that will be Mutter B'Mezid? Mm. And that's right. That, that I should have made that clear. So, okay. right, so the Rashba says, I can't. If it was mutter, right, then it wasn't wrong. Right. I don't bring a carbon if I did it, if I did it accidentally. And Rashim and Shkap says, the Ram says, no, you did something that was mutter, but it would be wrong. But whether it's wrong or not is determined retrospectively. I couldn't have known. Mm-hmm. In the same way, we understand, you know, we understand situations, you know, where I, you know, forget moral valences, right? I'm trying, or I'm a doctor, and there, right, and there's a 50, 50 you know, this, this medication is 50% chance of saving you, or 50% chance of, of killing you, and I choose, I give you the medication, and you either live or die. So what did I, right, did we say, well, it turned out I made the wrong choice, 
Or do we say, no, I made the right choice. It turned out badly. Mm. Right? That's the difference. That's whether you believe in moral luck or not. If you don't believe in moral luck, then you have to say, either I made the right choice or I made the wrong choice. What happens afterwards is irrelevant. Because I made, right, I made the right choice because I made the decision that followed naturally from the data I had available at the time. And if you believe in moral luck, you say, no, I made the wrong choice. I just couldn't have known it. So what is it coming to teach us? It's not training us in the right way to be because we're already doing our best. I don't know if you are, right? So it's, you know, of course, right? The doctor who's prescribing the medication. Right, so in a 50-50 choice, you have to make a decision. So then, right, this, right what, you know, then the only thing is, well, the Torah might teach you Shave Altas has been in Kumasei and you shouldn't do it in 50% chances or it might not, right? And that's what the, the question of whether Shave Altas and Kumasei matter, right, is exactly the training question for those sorts of issues. Right, if you have a fifty percent chance, and the right, and you don't know what the odds are, so does it make a difference if you're active or passive? So some people say that a lot of teachers you that be passive because the because the risks are lower that way, and then other people like me think it's not what the third teaches you, but you can have, but you can certainly use a lot to, to teach the lesson one way or the other. But it can teach you generally. You know what? What about you know fifty percent chance the patient the patient will die and. Uh, you know, and a five percent chance to recover. Well, maybe we'll have teach you shouldn't do that. If it's not active murder, you might right? But those are always complex. The, the the simple cases we present are always are always going to be abstractions that very rarely come out in life. Um, but again, for educational purposes, like we should teach you smile at everybody, and then you know, we'll tell you, you know, then, then we can go back and say, you know, what about that person? Well, don't smile at people who you know encourage them in their abusive behavior. And don't smile, right? Uh, right? Don't smile at people who find it creepy. And don't find, right? Right? Don't, right? Um, don't smile at people, right? But, yeah, but generally, the first rule is smile at everybody. That's a good thing to teach people. The moral lesson is having a cabello called down to save your coming efforts. And it's good for and if, and if, and if people haven't thought about it more, that's a good rule. And even if people have thought about it more, it's probably a good default to be trained to. All right. Thank you very much for uh, the whole two weeks.